Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hi, I'm KSL's Debbie Worthen. Four years ago, my son Asher was diagnosed with autism. After getting our footing, we decided it was time to celebrate the news with all of you. And that's how Celebrating the Spectrum was born. Each week, we consult with the experts and others who are learning to navigate life with a loved one who has special needs. This is a place where we find hope, look for solutions, and connect with those working to create a better world of inclusion. I've known today's guest for 30 years. I actually met Candace Christiansen in high school, but I had the chance to work more with her in recent years on a lifestyle show that I hosted for years here in Salt Lake City. We never talked about autism on that show. We talked about sex because Candace is a well-known sex therapist here in Utah. Candace, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This is fun. I noticed um, a few years ago on your social media accounts that you talked about getting diagnosed with autism. So, Mm -hmm. uh, and I should go back. So Candace and I didn't know each other super well in high school. We went on a few double dates together, hung out a few times. And I I think of it as we were kind of like fringe friends, like friend groups on the fringe that came together. But what I always liked about you was your genuine kindness and you didn't play games. And that's, I think, rare for girls in high school. So, okay. So when you were formally diagnosed with autism, Tell us about that. That was when? A few years ago? It, going on five years now. And so, um, yeah, I had wondered for quite some time, but I, again, was in my 40s at the time. Now I'm almost 50. And so I was just asking the wrong people. And, you know, even though I was doing my own research, I, uh, when you ask, you know, people will say, well, you give eye contact or you're in a relationship, you're not autistic. There's a lot of misassumptions about it. And so, um, after being misdiagnosed, I mean, I've been in therapy off and on since I was a teenager and finally found a really astute clinician that said, have you ever wondered if you're autistic? And I was like, oh my gosh, I finally feel like someone sees me and gets me. So had you wondered that? I wondered it for quite some time and my relationships were really struggling. My relationship with my now husband, Chris, was really, really struggling. And I, 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 I actually think that my diagnosis really helped us a lot. I don't want to say it saved us because that puts it all on me and its relationships are definitely a two-way street, but we were struggling so much with communication that, and I was struggling with communicating with my staff. Um, I have an outpatient treatment center and even my clinicians, it was just hard to communicate with. I was having meltdowns and just really struggling. So I thought I've got to figure out what's going on because I know I'm not borderline. Again, that's Mm -hmm. often a misdiagnosis that a lot of late diagnosed autistic women get. And And borderline what? Like borderline Borderline personality disorder. Sorry. Um, Borderline personality disorder. So I know, you know, those are like that, for instance, is a misdiagnosis that a lot of autistic women get. And a a lot of autistic men get misdiagnosed as narcissistic. 
And I can when in see reality, why. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. would make sense. When in reality, I, you know, I'm not like a drama queen. I'm highly sensitive. And I, mm-hmm. you know, there was just a lot going on. So once I was diagnosed, then the light went on for Chris and I. It was like, okay, now we know what we can work with. And now I've just spent the last close to five years really becoming an advocate for other autistic adults to make sure that we're seen, known, heard, and understood for who we are instead of continuing to be misunderstood. No, that's great. And when we first started talking about doing this podcast together, you talked mm-hmm. about the subject of um, difference versus deficit. And we've had a couple of guests talk about that, not not in that clear of terminology, but really even the idea. We had the dating coach from Love on the Spectrum come on. And, and similar yeah. to you, she was diagnosed, I mean, like 10 years ago, and she's you know, 50 years old. And she said, oh, what a difference it would make if we could just stop calling it um, a disorder Autism. and call yeah. it a difference. She's like this, the kindness that that would bring to everyone involved. So, and women are harder to diagnose. We've learned that. And girls are harder women to and diagnose. Girls. Yeah. Uh-huh. And mm-hmm. so when you look back to your teen years, to, you know, those formative years, what difference would that have made for you had you known? I mean, you know, 35 years ago, mm. there was there a different, was there a stigma to getting that diagnosis? Oh, yes. It, is there I still? Mean, Do you I, feel like there still is? I don't think there's as much of a stigma. I think there's definitely more understanding now, but I grew up in the 70s mm-hmm. and 80s like you did. Yeah. So I can't even imagine. Autistic research was being done on boys. I mean, girls just weren't even considered. And so back then, I don't even know. I do know all of my pictures show me stimming in some way, Mm. you know, whether I'm swinging my arms or, you know, I sucked a binky for till I was five. I mean, I had (laughs) had serious meltdowns. Well, I was seeking soothing. I was trying Mm. to soothe in an environment that was too much for me. But as I grew up, you know, you, you start to watch and go, oh, this is how I'm supposed to act or mm-hmm. talk. Or even though I didn't feel quote normal, what is normal? By yeah, the way, yeah, there's is no normal. Really a normal? Right. There's no normal. But right. so, yeah, I think, I, I think if I, if my parents had known, if I don't think I actually would have been accurately diagnosed, but let's say it was like now back then, I, d- I do think my support needs like the fact that I was so anxious in my sensory environment mm-hmm. and it would cause me to have meltdowns, significant, aggressive. I was very aggressive as a kid. That would have helped. Right. Well, and that would help me a ton. Yeah. I look at it also from the perspective of when, when our son got his diagnosis, it's the first, first diagnosis really in our, my family with my kids and my extended family with my siblings. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it's just all been new, but what that diagnosis did for us as an extended family was, okay, we need to shift how we approach this. And so instead of my family just feeling like your kid is out of control, (laughs) you know, it's like, oh, oh, this, this, his brain is not working the way ours works. And so let's figure out how we can accommodate and make everyone happy. And it has been really, really heartwarming to watch that Mm -hmm. and to watch my family really rally around this little boy who, you know, I'm so glad we're with him. We've learned so much and I'm glad that it's this era because, you know, 35, 40 years ago, the books I've read, it's just like, this is so crazy. And you can see why Mm -hmm. adults 
who are autistic are so against some of the therapy that was happening back then oh. and some of the terminology oh, yeah. and some of the things that doctors were telling families mm-hmm. when they were giving them that diagnosis oh, yeah. of your child is autistic. This is the worst possible news we could ever give you. Mm-hmm. You know, where mm-hmm. my extended mm-hmm. family is more like, you know what? I bet every successful CEO is on the spectrum. <laughs> you know, they're saying mm-hmm. stuff like that because mm-hmm. of the extreme interest. Okay. So let's talk about girls for a second because I've okay. read research that shows that that girls who are autistic are statistically in more dating violence relationships, mm-hmm. um, you know, unhealthy relationships with with their partners. Why are girls so hard to identify as autistic? Well, I think historically, because the research has been about boys who are autistic. And when you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person, we each actually demonstrate our our traits differently. And girls can, girls versus boys tend to quote, fit in, Mm -hmm. you know, the things that we might do, like as I'm quietly stacking my Barbie dolls and lining up my toys, because I'm quiet and I look compliant, no one's looking at how everything has to be lined up for me. So maybe it would have been obvious if they would have been looking at a boy doing Mm -hmm. that. Exactly. But for me, like when I look back, I had very kind of rigid mannerisms and play. There wasn't, I mean, it was very, very linear. Like I, Mm -hmm. I, yeah, but if, again, if it was a boy, they might be, oh, okay. And the meltdowns, you know, again, that would fit in more historically with like the Asperger's, you know, we don't use that diagnosis anymore, but meltdowns that I was having, again, if a boy was having, they might look at that more, you know, just all the struggles with like, I really struggling with so much in my, my environment. If I was a boy, that would have likely, if it was my brother, I have mm-hmm. a twin brother. You know? I, I didn't know that. But okay. Perhaps. Yeah. yeah. And so perhaps, you know, he would have been diagnosed quicker than me. So I do think there's a lot of stereotypes and assumptions about what boys and girls look like who are autistic mm-hmm. and we're breaking the stereotypes because we don't, autism doesn't look a certain way. Right. It doesn't look a certain way. Well, and the spectrum is so broad, which is Uh so fascinating. I mean, you know, we got Asher's diagnosis a few years ago. I've been taking a deep dive, literally Mm -hmm. calling everyone I know who knows someone Mm -hmm. who, you know, Mm -hmm. how this goes. I love it. Because I just, I want to know everything that I need to know. And I'm also fully aware I don't know what I don't know. And so that's one reason this podcast has been really, really great for me. All right. So... You you um, call yourself an Aspie woman. Do you still use that term? I don't. I've evolved, and partly because I've learned more about Hans Asperger right. yeah, and, yeah. and what he did right. in Nazi Germany yes. with the Nazis, uh-huh. and I'm really against that, you know. And so, again, if we talk about different, not deficient, mm-hmm. um, I don't anymore. If I'm talking about it with folks in terms of, you know, how my traits might present, mm-hmm. I would say, yeah, the way that Asperger's used to be categorized or you know in the dsm for instance perhaps that would fit more of me and i just i say i'm autistic i mean i definitely have support needs that people don't see when i'm at work or on a podcast but if you come home with me and you ask chris i do have support needs (laughs) so okay all right so we have talked to several adults who were diagnosed in adulthood and Mm -hmm. they talk about that moment you know, and one is Jared Stewart, and he's an amazing guy. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he he talks about that day because he had self-diagnosed. He was very educated, like you are in this in this field, and and he was working with autistic adults, and it was just like he knew. But then when the doctor said yes, 
you know, you are autistic. Mm-hmm. It was very, very emotional for him. Did you have mm-hmm. that same kind of experience? Yes, yes, yes. There were things that I would do, for instance, Chris and I would be at a grocery grocery store and I would be in someone's personal space mm-hmm. in the line and he would have to pull me back. I just, no spatial awareness, Debbie. You know, or like sitting there and I'd be chewing gum with my mouth open, like just not, mm. you know, just not aware. And it's not, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm very different focus, de- diversity focus, not deficit, mm-hmm. but to get to where you're going, you know, what is going on with me? There were, there were those things. And then melting down at things, I mean, severe meltdowns with Chris, where it was like, okay, what is happening? Like, this is not a situation where I should be having such a strong emotional reaction, you know, and then staff saying you're unprofessional because again, I was very like finding that things would cause me to react really strongly, not being aware of my sensory sensitivities or my environment. Those things, you know, I started doing research, like you said, Jared did, but I was doing it for a while and asking my therapist friends who were not autism specialists mm-hmm. who would again say, Oh no, you're get back out of, you're not. Uh. So I'd question myself, but again, I had this feeling like it's, I know I am every time I was taking mm-hmm. an assessment online, it fits. Right. <laughs> so it was very emotional and very reassuring for me. It was very reassuring. And then I also went through kind of a grieving process which I think a lot of autistic adults do where it's like, well, what would this have meant if I was diagnosed sooner? And, Mm -hmm. and, and Mm -hmm. what does this label mean for me? I was very scared at first to, to make it public, you know, and Debbie, I went on another station and I had, they had asked me to come on and I was going to talk about mindfulness. And I said, Hey, you know, I actually shared, I was autistic. The whole interview changed to me being autistic. Mm -hmm. And it was, that was traumatic for me. Mm -hmm. And then they never invited me back on. So there was this experience of, is something wrong with me because I've owned that this is who I am. There's also some of that Mm -hmm. in a world that still does have a lot of microaggressions against autistic people and stigma and stereotypes. So it's been a roller coaster. (laughs) Well, well, I love that you put it out there because when we, when we first had Asher's diagnosis, we were just like, this is just our family thing, you know, and we're not going to mm-hmm. be loud and proud about it. And, yeah. and, and, yeah. Then, and then I really had a huge pivot because I, I was just like, if I want true inclusion, which that's my long-term mission, yeah. that's no secret. That's part of the description of the podcast. You know, I want Good. true inclusion. It means being out there, being open, letting Asher be his true self, live his authentic yes. life publicly around people, not stopping him. I mean, obviously, if he's like really, you know, mm-hmm. tearing a place apart or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, mm-hmm. someone can't enjoy a football game because he's, you know, like just being yeah. a little too crazy, then I'll step in at that time. But I I want this to be the norm. I want us yes. to live in a new world where there's not the stigma. This is mm-hmm. diversity. And I mean, come on, everyone talks about the the value of diversity all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, let's mm-hmm. let's take it here too, you know. So yeah. but I'm sure that yeah. was very hard for you because your identity, I'm guessing, had been highly associated with mm-hmm. your professional success as a therapist. Mm-hmm. As a therapist and also someone who was on the, in the media a lot, right? I, mean, I was on with you a lot, mm-hmm. you know, and so 
it's scary. I also learned to like watch how people would talk and mannerisms and how to dress. And it, that's all masking. Mm-hmm. And I call it traumatic masking now because it's really tra- It's traumatic for those of us that have to try and fit in by camouflaging who we are. It's exhausting. Yeah, I'm sure it is. I mean, I can't even imagine that. Okay. So, so your podcast, let's talk about your podcast. It's called Fabulously Candace, the sexiest podcast about neurodivergence. So I listened to the first episode, loved it. Um, talk about what you discuss on your podcast and, and why you decided to do it. Well, it's definitely been an evolution. Chris and I actually started it together. And then with our business, I you know went on my own and I changed the name at the first of the year. I want to give credit to Jude Morrow, who's a he's in the United Kingdom and he has Neurodiversity Gold podcast. And he said, just in this beautiful accent of his, you should actually name your podcast Fabulously Candace, the sexiest podcast about neurodivergence, because no one is really talking about intimacy and autism at that level. And so I was scared to do that kind of change, you know, mid stride, whatever, but I did. And it's been really fun. We talked to autistic individuals, mixed neurotype couples, um, you know, professionals about autism and sex relationships, Mm -hmm. intimacy, communication, you know, like challenging issues in relationship, problematic sexual behavior, you name it, we talk about it, we go there. So, so as far as relationships go, how, how have relationships evolved for you? You know, from teenage years to young adult to now, like, you know, being a successful adult, I'd say that a successful adult, (laughs) an emotionally (laughs) successful adult. Um, How how has that changed? And looking back, do you feel like you fit into that group of women who who got into some of those situations? And now you can look back and say that that probably was partly due to to this this part of me. Yeah, I mean, I I would, even though I was cautious about drinking, I've always been cautious about drinking. Um, I grew up with an alcoholic mother. So I've always just been really cautious about drinking alcohol, for instance, but there's research that shows a lot of autistic people will get involved in substances. And I think a part of that is masking to fit in. So with friend groups, they would just try to, how can I fit in? It was, it was always really hard. I could have one friend, but if it got to more than one, I didn't know how to navigate that. Mm. I just, I, I couldn't keep up. And I also would really anger a lot of my friends starting in, I think I'm trying to think elementary school, but I can think of so many embarrassing times, junior high and high school, Debbie, oh my gosh, where I just, oh, I've had to do my own personal amends with my higher power about it because I would just have meltdowns or I would make them angry because I would insult them. And I would say things that were I'd be upset. And instead of handling it the way that you're quote supposed to, mm-hmm. my emotions would get the best of me and I would melt down. And so since my diagnosis, I so many people are compassionate and kind and loving, and I've actually been able to develop some really beautiful, authentic friendships. Mm-hmm. I don't have a lot of friends. I'm not going to say like I have a big friend group. I don't. Um, it's Chris and I against the world. Pretty much but do most family. people have a lot of friends? I just wonder that. I mean, I feel like I'm I'm know. friendly, but I have like a handful. That's yeah. it. Of like truly close some people, confidants. Yeah, some people like that. But for for us, I think, and I'm so grateful that Chris is like this. We just we just love our time mm-hmm. and. 
And I'm thankful for that because if I was with, in my previous marriage, I was with someone who was a social butterfly. Mm. And I do know other autistic folks who love being social and I'm just not one. Right. <laughs> I, I, you know, especially if there's topics that I just don't relate to at all whatsoever. It's very, it's boring to me. I want to have, I don't like small talk. I want deep conversation. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't like that. So, but as I've gotten older, I have developed some really beautiful, authentic friendships. I don't have a lot. But but they're really worthwhile now and and very accepting. Um, I haven't changed when you said, you know, you like that I was kind and I just didn't play games. Mm-hmm. I still don't play games. Right. And I think that's what my closest, dearest friends love about me is that I am. I'm just authentic, real and kind and loving. And I'm I'm here. I'm loyal. Right. You know? Yeah. No, no, I love that. And and friendships with adults, is, it's a whole different thing because, you know, we have those couple where. I mean, I have a couple of college roommates. I don't talk to them for several years and you just pick mm-hmm. right back up, you know, but overall, yeah. I mean, I think people are always surprised when they hear I, I'm actually not that social <laughs> because yeah. I, I come across as being very social, but yeah. the reality is that can be very exhausting for me. And yeah, my favorite mm-hmm. place is probably just chilling in my bedroom at home. So, mm-hmm. okay, Candace, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when okay. we come back, we're going to talk more about intimacy and uh, we'll say neurodiverse relationships. Is that a good sure. way to put it? Yeah. Sure. Okay. Okay. We'll be right back. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We are back. We are with Candace Christiansen, a well-known sex therapist here in Utah, who was recently identified as autistic about five years ago. I went to high school with Candace, went on a couple dates with Candace and our boyfriends at the time, uh, hung out a few times. And it's so fascinating to me, these adult diagnoses that we're seeing, because I think we're going to see a lot more of them. Do you? I I agree. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And we have this family friend who she's divorced now and we just all thought her ex-husband was just such a weirdo and he was recently diagnosed as autistic and I feel so bad like I feel like all of us would have approached the whole thing differently had we known that you know and not in a pity way just in an understanding way and and I'm looking at autism you know I'm a mom of an autistic kid I'm looking at it through a different lens now so what I'm noticing is there are not a lot but several people in my life who I am like 99% sure on the spectrum. (laughs) Have have you started seeing that with people that you know as well? 
Oh, I've seen it. I've seen it for a long, long time. So I agree with you. And we, I would say now in our outpatient center, we treat 100% neuro, neurodivergent folks. So whether they're genetically neurodivergent or environmentally neurodivergent, mm-hmm. that's a whole other topic for a whole other day. But yeah. Right. What's given me a lot of hope is because, you know, when you get that diagnosis for your child, it's very scary. You're like, what does the future hold? I need to shift my thinking. And bottom line is parenting is all about shifting your thinking expectations all the time. Mm-hmm. But you just wonder, like, what does their life hold? And so for me, it's given me a lot of hope, even talking to you where, oh, you have lived a great, full, happy life. Mm-hmm. And it's what I could hope for for my son, you know, especially mm-hmm. with this this world of inclusion that I hope that we're that we're really embracing as society. OK, let, let's get into some of the nitty gritty. So when you when you talk about intimacy with autistic adults and I'm guessing in most cases it's one's autistic, the other is not. Is that accurate or is that not accurate? You know, I don't I don't know that that's accurate. Or does that even I, is that I, irrelevant? I actually think, you know, I think I see a lot of folks, Debbie, that will come to me saying they're in a mixed neurotype relationship when I see neurodivergence in both of them. Mm. I do think, I do think like attracts like. Yes. Well, yeah. Your vibe attracts your, Mm -hmm. your vibe attracts your tribe. Yeah. 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 yeah, I love that. And Mm -hmm. when you were talking about, you're still the Mm -hmm. same, you're still the same kind person that doesn't play games and that Mm -hmm. I thought, yeah. And Mm -hmm. you can see that every time I've talked to you, even in our adult Mm -hmm. life, I get that impression from you. You live an authentic life for you. And that's, that is a beautiful thing. Okay. So what, what are the issues that those couples are facing? Well, I just want to say to listeners Mm -hmm. that all relationships have issues. Two people bring in issues that they're going to struggle with. And so, and autistic people and non-autistic people speak different languages. Mm -hmm. So there's a misassumption about autistic people lack empathy. And now there's been research done called the double on the double empathy problem, which Mm -hmm. shows that if I'm autistic and you're autistic, Debbie, we understand each other. Oh yeah. I've heard this research. Fascinating. Communicate. Mm -hmm. If you and I were in a relationship where we're both autistic, we would get each other. Our communication would actually fly pretty easily. But if I'm with someone who's not autistic, Chris, our communication is going to be more challenging. What does that mean? That means the focus doesn't mean that I don't have empathy. The focus gets to be on he and I learning to understand each other and our perspectives. So that's a lot of the challenge that can happen in mixed neurotype relationships where it does feel like you're talking in different languages sometimes. So practicing that patience mm-hmm. and really seeking to understand each other and demonstrating empathy towards each other is crucial. I have a lot of empathy. I'm a therapist for goodness sake. Mm-hmm. I demonstrate empathy. I have a lot of emotion. And and with my non-autistic you know, people around me, including Chris, it can be hard to understand his perspective sometimes just as he struggles with mine. So that's a big one. Mm -hmm. I will say that's a big one that I work with couples on is how can you really listen to understand each other and hear? And also, how can we avoid making the autistic person in the relationship, the quote project to fix? Mm. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Okay. So mm-hmm. yeah, along those lines, this researcher we had come on, he wrote the book Uniquely Human. Have you read that book? Mm-hmm. Uh-uh. Oh, it's no. amazing. You should read it. He's oh, he studied okay. autism for 50 years oh, okay. and, you know, talks about the evolution of research and studying that's and all great. this. And he talks about that where when, 
when observers watch two autistic people, you can't tell which one is autistic. And then, you know, and then when you mm-hmm. when you mix it up, then then you can see there's a disconnect in the communication. So that's really interesting. You say that. I also kind of laughed when you said people will come in and like my significant other <laughs> is, is the problem. You know, it's like, actually, well, you know, you're right. We're all dealing with issues. And when you're talking about, you know, coming, trying to understand each other and that type of thing, that sounds just like my marriage. Yeah, that sounds no mm-hmm. different. So is no it just different. is it just we're all trying to understand each other's perspective or is it heightened? Is, is there a difference? There is a difference in terms of, for instance, you know, I, well, it's, it's, it's challenging because I have a lot of sensory sensitivities and so I can be okay to a point. So we could be at the mall and if I'm not, don't have my noise canceling earbuds in and, you know, then all of a sudden it's too much and I am at risk for having a meltdown. So it's like, and I don't want Chris to feel like he's, I'm hijacking the, the day. Mm-hmm. So we've come, we've had to come up, uh, you know, come up with agreements about, you know, if, if we're in a public setting or we're at a concert or whatever, and it's too much for me, can we drive separate cars? Can we have an mm. agreement? Can we, so that you don't feel like I'm ending the night too soon, for instance, because I'm on overload. Mm-hmm. You know, we were at the airport getting back. Um, we went to Maui recently, and it took 12 hours to get back. And I'll tell you what, lack of sleep and the sensory overload for me, I was really pretty tapped. Mm-hmm. And But for him, he wasn't. He was tired, he but not, not tapped in the same way. Mm-hmm. And so we've really had to come up with agreements around, if I'm feeling that way, what can I do to self-care? Because in the, in the, the beginning of our relationship, and especially right at the beginning of the diagnosis, that period, Chris moved into caregiver mode and did, he admitted, he saw me as a project mm-hmm. and, that can't and so feel good. that, no, it wasn't good. Mm-hmm. And so he realized, no, this is about the two of us working together. You know, he doesn't have to step in, but he can say, how can I support you? And it's like, I've got my earbuds, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever I can put in my noise counseling or my weighted blanket. So that he doesn't feel like he's tending to a child's needs. Right. You know, so, so in that sense, I do see that sometimes with mixed neurotype couples where one steps into more caregiver role and feels like their needs have to be pushed aside because they're trying to navigate the sensory sensitivities of what's going on. When in reality, if both people can be responsible for taking care of themselves, Mm -hmm. it does work better. And that does sound like a, any kind of relationship, yeah. any coupleship. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about meltdowns. So I'm sure when you were a little kid, those meltdowns were like literal kicking and screaming, crying, right? Oh, and, and attacking my siblings. I mean, my sister has scars because I would just attack. I was vicious, Debbie. So, <laughs> but I would also go under my bed and headbang. I mean, oh, I would yeah. get okay, so upset okay, that yes, I, would be, uh-huh. I would be headbanging and I would be, I mean, just, I was inconsolable. I was so just literally, I mean, for hours. So your parents, did they, what were their thoughts on all of that? Well, on, so my mom's passed. Um, I'm my sorry. Passed I think away. I knew that. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, you're okay. My dad, um, I was very nervous. You mean in terms of talking about me, my autism? Well, yeah, I mean, like, how did they think when you were a little kid that they think like there's something different about Candace? 
Like, no. okay. No, I mean, I, we, I, again, I'm, I grew up in an alcoholic system, family system. So dad was military and mm-hmm. when dad wasn't around, mom would drink. And so I honestly think they thought this is cheap. Well, I got labeled as drama queen, mm-hmm. um, oversensitive worry wart. I was teased really bad by <laughs> my siblings. Oh my gosh, that's awful. But, you yeah, know, some of these would, family dynamics, though, that's how families are. Mm-hmm. I mean, siblings aren't nice to each other. Yeah. And I hear that. I hear that with other autistic females, too, that as kids, we get labeled as being you're overly emotional. Then we grow up and it's like you're too dramatic. I remember having a therapist say that to me. One of my own therapists said mm-hmm. to me, like, you're just addicted to drama. And it was like once I was diagnosed, it's like I'm I'm highly sensitive. That doesn't mean I'm addicted to drama. Yeah. I live in a culture that is not neurosensitive or neuroinclusive. Mm-hmm. Like I, it's too much for yeah, me. I'm right. going to be sensitive. It doesn't mean I'm dramatic. So that that's how my family dealt with it. Okay. Okay. And so as an adult, so you talk about when you and, and Chris were first together and mm-hmm. you would have a meltdown. What, what would trigger a meltdown? What does a meltdown for an autistic adult look like? For me, yeah, for um, you, it can look mm-hmm. different for right. for folks. But for me, it was um, short, abrupt, abrasive. You know, just re- like sometimes I might pound the table, or at what would trigger it would be a change in the situation, a change in the schedule, feeling surprised at something that mm-hmm. came into my environment that was that I didn't expect. Yeah. Um, or you know, I would be masking as a therapist all day. Oh yeah. And, mm -hmm. and then I would get home and I was exhausted, hungry, tired. I just, I was going to say you probably, it was like the worst case scenario. Oh, the worst. And Debbie, when you used to interview me on TV, I would cry after every interview Oh, and I couldn't, I couldn't couldn't figure out why until I was diagnosed and I was like, it's because I was in such a hyper aroused state mm-hmm. of masking and holding it together for those four minutes mm-hmm. that then I would leave and I would literally just burst into tears. Yeah, it's an emotional I, release. I now, yeah, now I know why. Wow, that is, that is so fascinating. All right, so so for listeners who are, are thinking like, you know, this kind of describes my relationship or this kind of describes how I'm feeling, what are the solutions that's so loaded. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I think people can, the solution would be get some support from, you know, a therapist or program that understands what you need. Luckily, there's a lot of neuroinclusive, neurosensitive books coming out mm-hmm. and therapists out there. And I will say, you know, for those of you that struggle with communication issues and connecting I have found, and Chris has found as well, the Gottman, oh, the, hmm. the Gottman books and the Gottman workbooks actually are really helpful. Why? Because I need, I, you know, I, my brain works in concrete systemic, like a systematic way. Mm-hmm. And the Gottman's writing is very concrete. It spells out a script. I love scripts. Mm-hmm. Scripts help me so much in my relationship. 
that can be really helpful. That can be a good solution. Um, that is fascinating. You, no, that's it great. It is fascinating. Yeah. I wish I could say, let the Gottmans know, like, thank you. You really just nailed it <laughs> right, without realizing right. that you're speaking in a neuro-inclusive way to right. so many of us autistic folks because it just is really concrete. Mm-hmm. It's a script. And I need a script. And when Chris and I struggle in any relationship, when you struggle – you know, our heart rate gets to a certain point, we can't hear, and then we're, you know, we're flooded. Mm -hmm. Getting out the Gottman workbook to go through an issue is incredibly calming to both of our systems and Mm. helpful. So, so, you know, the solution, I would encourage folks, get some counseling, get some coaching. We do neuro-inclusive counseling and coaching for folks, get some support. There's podcasts like this one and ours, there's so many books coming out. There's so many great things. My dear colleague, Mona Love does neurodiverse love a podcast actually for partners. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh. neuro different couples. Yeah, Yeah. that's great. So there's just a lot of support out there now. If you're wondering, you know, is this me and you're curious and I'll say some people want a formal diagnosis and some people don't need one. I I can see that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because if, if the label isn't going to if, if it, you don't need a formal label for anything, but you do want to understand yourself better, go these other routes. Right. Right. You know? I and mean, that's yeah, controversial. Because, well, yeah, but the label, I mean, what does it really do? doesn't change you. Literally changes it, nothing other than if you yeah. feel like you need it and it clarifies life and sends yeah, you in a certain direction, or, right, then that's a fantastic thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But even as you're talking about the communication, I think like my husband and I struggle big time when it comes to communicating, you know, and I mm-hmm. always think like, I'm a professionally trained communicator. <laughs> you know? So just say what you mean, that type of thing. But, but it's, you know, it is, it's two people. Like you said, it's, it's just always two it's people, two people mm-hmm. and it takes practice. And it, we have both have a history, you know, we cut, we have our genetics, how our brains work. And then we come from a family, you know, whether if, if you come from a family that didn't communicate, no one's a good communicator. I mm-hmm. like to say that. And I am an exceptionally awesome autistic communicator. I do communicate very well. And Chris, not he, he's very nuanced and mm-hmm. that is very challenging for me because I just want him to give it to me straight just tell me what is on your mind. Don't mince words. And so that's been a process. Right. You know? Yeah. And the nuance, I mean, from everyone that I've talked to on this podcast, the nuance is where the challenges lie a lot of times. Is that accurate? Yeah. Someone in the ethers created these social norms about how we're supposed to communicate. And and for those of us that are autistic and ADD, ADHD, and some other types of neurodivergence, it just doesn't work for us. And and so I would love to have the world be more neurosensitive and inclusive instead of for trying to force us to move into the neuromajority's way of communicating. Let's Let's have it go both ways. Let's understand each other because the nuanced way to communicate is not the best way to communicate. Agreed. Yeah. And and I feel like I'm like you in the, in the sense of just tell me you're not going to hurt my feelings. Yeah. Like just say the words. Yes. Let's get this out. You don't need to yeah. mince words. Like just say it, you know? Yeah. Um, okay. So do you also work with couples who are neurotypical? I'm sure we have. (laughs) It's so funny, Debbie, because I would love to say, well, yes, we do. But I don't know anymore. I'll be honest. I don't know anymore. I don't. I mean, I've actually said on listservs, we work with, you know, 100% neurodifferent folks because I say neurodifferent because 
it's so hard to know what's typical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what? I feel like it is. And I say that, and I'm not saying that to say by any means, everyone's a little autistic. That mm-hmm. is a microaggression. Mm-hmm. That is not what I'm saying, but I am saying trauma creates an environmental neuro difference in the brain. Trauma, Mm -hmm. substance abuse, chronic substance abuse changes the way the brain works. So when we're working with domestic violence survivors, we're working with complex trauma survivors who, you know, are people who have chronic substance abuse issues, Mm -hmm. who've struggled with all kinds of addiction issues. That's why I'm saying environmentally, their brains have changed. So at this point, I don't know. If we're talking about autistic, you know, ADD, ADHD folks, our bipolar clients, our schizophrenic clients. Yeah, we've got genetic neurodifferent clients too, but I honestly don't know anymore what's typical. We all survived a pandemic for goodness sake. Mm -hmm. Like we're we're changed for our brains and our our autonomic nervous systems are changed forever. So yeah, no, that's fascinating. When we were getting licensed to be foster parents, one of the... um, one of the classes was on trauma and how trauma and the brain aren't separate. They're interweaved. You know, you can't, yeah, you can't survive are. trauma. And it's like, Oh, that, that is, that trauma is sectioned off. You know, like yeah. we just cut that yeah. off. It's all, no. in, it's all interweaved. And, and what was mm-hmm. so fascinating to me is how, um, how every person processes it so differently. Mm-hmm. You know, did you ever see the movie lion? It had Nicole no. Kidman in it, and, and she and her husband, it's not a true story, she and her husband adopted mm. these two boys from India. And um, they were not biological brothers, but one of them got to them, and just little gem, angel child. <laughs> and the movie is talking about he's going back to find his mom where she is, because it, it, mm. it shows how he got separated from the family. And then the other child gets off the plane they get home he immediately starts like bashing his head into the tv and you know just like so different and it's like they both had experienced trauma that we don't even know the extent of but Mm -hmm. those brains processed it so much differently you know 100 yeah so that that is that's interesting okay any any final thoughts you'd like to add i'm just sending so much compassion and love to everyone out there that is neurodifferent or in a mixed neurotype relationship or the parent of neurodifferent children, because we all need that. We need so much more understanding mm-hmm. in a world that historically has been quite judgmental and unkind. And so I always end my podcast by saying that. And I just want to say that here too, that we all could use a little more kindness and understanding and neuro inclusion. And so that's what I want to end with. No, I love that. Thank you. And that that is so mm-hmm. true in general. You know, the the world needs more of that. And especially right now. Don't you agree? Mm-hmm. I mean, everything oh is so, like everything is divisive. Mm-hmm. I like the color blue. You like the color red. It's divisive. <laughs> you know, I didn't choose those for political reasons either. <laughs> I'm just saying I'm just saying it's like everyone wants to fight over everything where it's we're yeah. all so much more alike than we are different. We are. Yeah. We are. I love that. Yeah. And let's honor and embrace our similarities and our our differences. Candace, it was great talking to you today. I have always you know you. I've always loved talking to you. I've always just thought yeah, you were such a genuine person and and it's great to have your insight. So we'd love to have you back on the show sometime. I love it. Okay. Thank Anytime. you so much. And celebrating the spectrum is a KSL podcast. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. 
In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.